This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance, not in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown, but being joined virtually. Lance, how are you today? Best day of my life. What am I talking about? I, I think the isolation's getting to me. <laughs> so Lance, in this episode, we speak to a really amazing woman. Her name is Jennifer Carroll, and she is the daughter of two victims of the Golden State Killer. Lyman Robert Smith was her father, and Charlene Smith was her stepmom. Yeah, Jennifer Carroll uh, just reached a status, uh, at least in my on my in my book, um, and I think on this show and for you as well. When when we were done talking to her, she just reached a status of like, you are now in the upper echelon of hero to us. Uh, what she went through, her parents, well, her father and stepmother were murdered by the most notorious serial killer in. American, perhaps world history, one of the most notorious serial killers, uh, and and she has gone on to become a life coach. She does uh, leadership coaching. She talks about her experience with the Golden State Killer. She talks about her experience with other victims uh, whose family members were killed by uh, the Golden State Killer by uh, D'Angelo. She talks about the day that he was caught. Everything she's done post this tragedy has been to just make the world a better place, and she's an amazing person to talk to. That's right. And this week, Lance, actually on Friday, marks two years since D'Angelo was caught. So check out Jennifer's work at jcarroll.com. That's Carol with an E. Jennifer actually has her own podcast, too. It's called The Lawyer's Daughter, where she covers the ongoing hearings from the Golden State Killer from inside the courtroom in a lot of cases. And we don't do this very often, but I just want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. She does go into some detail surrounding the actual murder of her father and stepmother and as you're listening to it, just keep in mind that this is the daughter talking about her father and stepmother and uh, just really hard to put yourself in her position. But try to do that and, and you, you get a whole new appreciation for what type of person uh, Jennifer is. That's right. She certainly comes with a lot of strength and is not uh, does not shy away from talking about the therapy that she needed after these uh, tragic murders. Uh, she was also a suspect for a period of time, which is a particularly interesting um, part of the episode. All right, everybody, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We're doing weekly Monday morning episodes, so that's been a lot of fun. And check us out on the live Gossip Pod on Facebook this Thursday at 3 p.m., 
that's something that we're trying to do during this isolation. Hopefully it carries over past isolation. We just want to keep, uh, uh, keep being as engaging as possible with the listeners because we know that you guys are out there and you're, you're in need of something to just take your mind off of everything that's going on in the real world. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to do that every Thursday at about 3 p.m. Uh, Tim, we keep getting better and better. Technically, we keep getting better and better at it. So uh, every week. We, yeah, we couldn't get worse that first week. We could knock on wood here. You could, you can't get any worse. We can only get better with it. Uh, also, check out crawlspace-media.com. You can see uh, any live show that's coming up. Right now, we still have those shows with True Crime Obsessed scheduled for August 8th in Boston and August 28th in Philadelphia. At this time, they're still on, but um, you know, keep checking in. We don't know what the state of the world is going to be at that point. We're all waiting to see where we're going to be once this isolation and this pandemic is over. So uh, just keep checking in on that uh, crawlspace-media.com for the live shows. And uh, check out all the new shows that we have, all the new podcast shows that we have. We have uh, Believe It or Don't. We have Even the Podcast is Afraid. These are sort of off-genre a little bit from the true crime that we normally talk about. They're great, entertaining shows. You want to check those out. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot, and hope you enjoy the interview with Jennifer Carroll. Welcome to Crawl Space, Jennifer Carroll. How are you today, Jennifer? Oh, apparently I'm real sassy this morning. I'm. It's a good sunny morning in Sacramento, California, so doing well. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we know that you know the majority of people who we are talking to currently are in some sort of self uh, quarantine, some sort of uh, self isolation. Um, is that the same with you out there in, in Sacramento? Are you taking the necessary precautions? Ah, uh, yes. I normally live in my real life. I live in Santa Cruz, California, but my daughter is in Sacramento and she doesn't have a roommate right now. So I thought I would punish myself. No, actually, I'm just finishing parenting of my 20 year old and I'm <laughs> quarantining with her. The last time I was out in public in any real way was at the D'Angelo hearing. So now that I've past that threshold of 14 days. Uh, it's it's nice. I mean, it, I could, I am so lucky. I could be in much worse places between Sacramento and Santa Cruz. I have two fantastic options. So it's going well. Well, that's great. And lovely cities, both of them. So I'm gl- glad to hear you're, you're with your daughter. That's nice. And you're both doing well. That's also nice. Yeah. yeah but you mentioned D'Angelo and you were at a, was a, a hearing recently? What, what do you mean? Yeah, D'Angelo, uh, so our... I call him my ass hat. D'Angelo was in a <laughs> hearing. So yeah, it's going to be a little irreverent. I can tell. Uh, he, We had a hearing on the, oh my gosh, it was in March. It was a few weeks ago. Is time still a thing? Uh, nope. So we, a few weeks ago, we saw him in court. What we did there was dealt with the request for additional DNA, which sounds kind of dumb. Actually, it sounds dumb to me. But what was happening is that the prosecution needed more DNA because what they had had, they had used. If you think about DNA as a piece of evidence, in my world, it is an, and I think we should try to make laws around this, but DNA to me is an extremely unique kind of evidence because if you're using it properly, you use it up. The very nature of how we use DNA as evidence is you have to run lab tests, you have to do analyses, you have to compare it to the samples that come from the crime scenes, which is unfortunate because it also means we're using up the DNA from the crime scenes, but that's how 
this is done. So in this case, the DNA ran out. We need to get more. And the prosecution had asked for it. And the defense, his attorneys had filed a a stay, basically an injunction. And the judge had signed it ex parte, meaning without anybody in the room, which is fine that judges can do that, essentially asking that we go ahead and do it in an open hearing so that the prosecution could then make an argument for why they need it. And the defense could argue why they don't. This is fascinating to me that this level of complexity would be involved, but we're dealing with a death penalty case, which I know in California is something to laugh at. But the fact remains that death penalty brings with it certain rights and privileges for victims and for prosecution that are important. So even though I'm anti-death penalty, it's been a good exercise to have this in place. So to get back to the hearing, when we went into the hearing, what the prosecution was asking for was to relieve that injunction and let let the collection move forward. And that is what we heard. We heard those arguments that day. Some of the arguments that came up uh, were, I, in my point of view, fairly irrelevant, like jurisdiction and those kinds of things. They also argued that maybe this was a Brady violation because something must be happening with the DNA. This is the defense. The prosecution must be using the DNA on something secretive if they've used all the DNA up already. Uh, The prosecution assured everyone there is no Brady violation. And for those that don't know, Brady, the Brady law, the Brady rule says that if you have something that might show that the defendant, D'Angelo, is not guilty, you have to share that. We don't have to worry. There's no evidence like that that shows that he is not guilty. So the judge ultimately, to make a very long story short, ultimately ruled that we could collect more DNA from D'Angelo. It was collected that afternoon for kits, which are two swabs each. Some of those hard to find swabs, as a, as a matter of fact, those uh, swabs, those that data collection was done on Thursday afternoon. That was the day of the hearing, and it was already to the labs by Friday. So they and we got what we needed, which is really what we wanted. And it also surfaced some of the other interesting tactics the defense is going to take as we move forward in this case. Wow, that is that is incredible uh, insight or sort of ins- insider baseball into this. Uh, this case of uh, D'Angelo and the D'Angelo you're speaking of, for those who don't know, is Joseph D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State killer, uh, East Area rapist. And for those who don't know who Jennifer Carroll is, uh, can you tell us what your involvement and your what your connection to Joseph D'Angelo is? Yes, other than being one of the people in the courtroom who's giving him the death stare. <laughs> yes. Um, I call him DNA guilty, trademark copyright. Yep, that's mine. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, the DNA from his body was found inside my stepmother, who was murdered along with my father in Ventura, California in 1980, March of 1980. Actually, we just hit the 40-year mark. We did not know for 20 years that this was that, that, that he is the one who killed them. In fact, we prosecuted someone in Ventura in the spring of 1981. And uh, I'm going to be talking about that soon, but um, soon on my podcast. But that was so interesting because we were in Ventura, they were so hell bent on finding who killed my dad, Charlene, because it was a really notorious murder in a small town. Come 20 years later, we find out through the good, solid detective work down in the Orange County Cold Case Group with our Paul Holes, Larry Poole, Detective Larry Poole, who put together the 
MO of a series of murders in Southern California that looked like they belonged together and then put the DNA together, which was also coming into its um, power at, at the turn of the millennium, right in the 2000, early 2000s. And so Larry figured out that we had a, a serial killer on the loose. He then named him the original Night Stalker, which is why you might see ONS, E-A-R-O-N-S sometimes, because ONS comes from the original Night Stalker. That's a Southern California serial killer. And then it was a few years later, we learned that it was tied to a series of rapes and break-ins and everything else in Northern California, which gives us the EAR part, East Area Rapist. And all the DNA we have from all over the state points to one man who now sits in the Sacramento County Jail. Who? So, <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it, is a, it is a rare occurrence when we have somebody who is so directly connected to uh, such a notorious string of crimes like D'Angelo is. Um, and this is uh, directly uh, related to you. you the, 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 the two individuals that he murdered, was this, uh, was this on March 13th? Did I get the date right on that? The date is the investigator's best guess. It makes sense based on their behavior. But for a long time as kids, we grew up not really knowing what day they right. died. But yes, it's March 13th in 1980. And uh, it was at their home. We lived, we three kids lived with my mom in her house. Just so folks know, we weren't, I wasn't living at the house. My dad and Charlene lived um, about a mile away from us as the crow flies. So luckily we weren't in the home, but I had been in the home a week before. And there's a good chance that's when D'Angelo was watching them. So I do get the heebie-jeebies every once in a while about that. That's insane. Yeah, I could see. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I, I can't believe that um, that the case went to prosecution before. Um, did people suspect that the murders had to do with your dad being a lawyer? Well, yes. And my dad was, uh, going to be, we think probably was going to get an appointment to a judgeship in the next 30 days. Uh, but he and my stepmother were also considered prominent in the community. Now, again, it's a small town at this point. Ventura was still small, but he had been very active in politics. He wanted to become a senator. He he was head of the Democratic Central Committee. So my dad and Charlene knew everybody. And they pissed people off too. My dad was involved in a lot of business deals that were aggressive to say the least, and probably clever because that's how he prided himself as being clever. And so there were enough people out there, including Charlene having a couple boyfriends, uh, to have maybe caused a murder or have, I don't know, made somebody angry enough to kill them. I guess that's the way we thought about it. I know I spent 20 years thinking it somehow was because of their behavior. And boy, did I really feel guilty and have to sit down and, and take that in that I had somewhat blamed them for their deaths. And then to find out they were killed by a random serial killer really made me check myself. But that's how involved and busy they were. But what are the odds? You know, I mean, they they were the ones that were in these circles. You said your your dad had business dealings that was uh, aggressive, to say the least. That just feels like the natural train of thought to me. Not not a not a random uh, serial killer. So it's interesting. One of the things I'm doing, which is actually really helping me and making my poor mom get a lot of phone calls from me yelling at her, but I'm going back <laughs> through articles from back then 
And I talk about those articles and talk about what we know now and what we knew then. And it really is helping me understand some of the myths that were built up around my our case in particular, because our case, I guess, turned out to be the most colorful. And you can put those air quotes around it. And and now I'm beginning to understand why there was so much drama. I was just 18 when they were killed. I barely, I was trying to get to college. Like that was my big goal. Get the hell away from home, right? That's what that's what you're thinking about yeah. at 18. And so now when I look back and realize how many irons were in the fire and how complex it was, and that what we believed is what we read in the papers, because honestly, back then we didn't have, as a family, we didn't have inside information. I have much more now as being part of a group of survivors who is actively pursuing this case than I ever did when I was a kid. That's in, that's incredible. What was your relationship like with law enforcement uh, in the days and weeks and months after your your uh, your father and stepmother's murder? So right away, my relationship with law enforcement is they considered me a suspect, which no way. bothered me for years. I'm sorry to interrupt. They, yeah, they legitimately considered you a suspect? You know, this one, it really gets me now because now we know Charlene was raped. And by the way, I could never have wielded any sort of piece of wood to have bashed people over. I'm not even tall enough to have executed it based on just physics. But yeah, they did. And I actually had to take a polygraph test. That's how serious it was in the first 48 hours. Wow. What was that like taking the polygraph? Uh, I did. It's so embarrassing to admit the truth. So if you knew my dad, he was a smarty pants and I had was raised to be a smarty pants. And so I worked hard to beat the machine. Not that I killed them. I just wanted to beat the machine. And I got to tell you, it's not that hard if you are able to do mind over matter. Essentially, the trick is they have you do a test where they have you write a number on a piece of paper. And so in this case, I hadn't really thought it through. But in this case, I because I, I didn't know what was going to happen next. But I wrote a number three. Well, then they ask you during the test, what is the number on the paper? And so they say, is it has to all be closed-ended questions. As you know, you have to say yes or no. They can't ask you to speak. So they said, is that a three? And in my mind, all I did was picture an eight. And I said, no, it's not a three. It's an eight. That's the thing that went through my head. And no blip. So there you go. There's a smart ass answer to something I should have taken much more seriously, but you have to understand I was just 18 and I thought they were crazy because there was no way I killed my dad and Charlene. So you don't get the magnitude until you kind of get more of an adult brain. And then you, then you feel shame and then you feel guilt. And then after a shit ton of therapy, you feel uh, better about it because you realize it wasn't about you at all. Now we were we we're talking about your your parents uh, being murdered in a in a very brutal manner, and the police suspecting the eighteen year old daughter. I don't know what kind of motive they gave you at the time. Uh, are you comfortable describing how your parents were killed? Yes. Um, just so people listening should know, I do sound probably too cavalier at this point, but I talk about it a lot. So. Um, there are times when it does catch me and I will um, absolutely lose it. But I also have my armor up for some of these discussions. So I just want folks to know that's absolutely in play. And it also has been 40 years. So 40 years can do a lot for a person's distance. So that's that's a good thing. 
What's interesting is that at the time, the headlines all read that the Smiths were killed in their sleep. That was said over and over again. And so that brought a lot of comfort, if you could imagine, believing that they didn't know what hit them. Of course, now we have a better sense of what happened. They, they went to bed that night. My stepmother was notoriously clean. She always cleaned up. She was the kind of person who'd take your glass away if you left it on the table too long. And you'd be like, but wait, didn't I have half a Coke? It would be gone because she's that kind of cleaner. That was the joke. Gotcha. Set anything down because <laughs> Charlene would put it away. So she would have cleaned up the kitchen. My dad would have uh, finished reading the paper, probably had a snort, typically scotch. And he would head to bed first and be reading. That night, they both didn't wear anything to bed. Charlene was always in her bathroom. She had her own bathroom. She would uh, wash her face, take off all of her jewelry, put her hair up because back then you didn't necessarily wash your hair every day. So you had to take care of it before you went to bed. They crawled into bed together. I do not know if they had sex or not, but they fell asleep as one does. Sometime in the night, a perpetrator crawled through the bathroom window that was in their, uh, their master bathroom that probably was left open, shined a flashlight in their eyes. I suspect he was wearing his ski mask and he proceeded to tell them to not move or he would kill them. I'm sure he had a gun with him. He tied them up and then he told my dad, if you make any noise, I will kill her and then I will come back and kill you. He then took Charlene out of the bedroom and into the other room, which I think was probably the family room because that's the room that makes the most sense. It was next to the kitchen and that's always been an important feature for him. Um, my dad would have laid in bed. His brain would have been on fire trying to figure out what to do, what to do, what to do. He would have, you know, he knew he couldn't make noise. On the other hand, he would be damned if he was going to be beat by this man. So I'm sure he was tortured laying there tied up trying to figure out how to save her and stop him. Meanwhile, in the family room, Charlene was raped. Likely she had a blindfold on, cannot confirm that. And then she would have heard him get up and go make some food. He would eat some of the food that was in the kitchen, taking his time, and then he would come back and rape her again. She would then, she's naked on the floor, tied up, probably with the blindfold on, as he leaves again and goes to the refrigerator and gets a beer. He enjoys his beer. He looks around the house. He figures out anything he might want to take. He comes back and probably rapes her again. And I don't know how many times this goes on, but then he takes her back to the bedroom where my dad is face down. And I don't know if he was face down the whole time or turned face down at that point. Charlene is put down on the bed and she is face up, as I understand it. He goes over to my dad's side of the bed, takes a log that he brought on with him. And this is a log. Uh, from an orange tree or a citrus tree, which is different than what you might think of as a typical fireplace log. So it's much more like a bat than something with a lot of bark on it. Uh, orange trees have barks, but it's just a different kind of smooth bark. He smashes my dad's head, maybe once, at least once, maybe more than once. Charlene can hear that sound and she can probably feel the blood spatter on her face. And then he walks around to Charlene's side of the bed and he kills her the same way. That's what happened. A few days later, my little brother, who was 12, went up to mow the lawn, went in the house to um, get what he needed to get in the garage to get the lawnmower, heard the alarm going off, the digital alarm, not the house alarm, but the clock alarm by the bed, and discovered them both there in the bed. And that's how we knew they were dead. Wow. And that is a, uh, 
That is a terrifying story. That is a horrifying yeah. story. It, it's a lot different than they were killed in their sleep. I, and I did not know the depth of it until, until really it started to get put together with the East area rapist stories. And we started to really understand the MO. And then I happened to be doing an unsolved mysteries with Larry Poole. And for the first time he said a lot more about what had happened. It was so graphic that I, they couldn't use it on the show. It's like he just that day had to get it all out. And so that's when it became clear to me, this was a much more horrific situation than when it first appeared. Now, what did that do to you to hear the graphic detail from someone who's investigating the case who you just said needed to get it all out? Did that fire up some some rage in you or what was what was the emotional toll that that took on you? Well, I think because of the timing, I just had my daughter and um, and I'm a single mom by choice. And so I had um, not really by choice, but I wasn't married. So what are you going to do? So I had just had her. And what it really did to me more than I have a lot of times where I'm really compassionate about what dad and Charlene went through. But at that exact time around the taping of the Unsolved Mysteries, it caused me to just become terrified because I knew that this person was still out there. And as I started to learn about what happened in Sacramento, he was notorious for calling victims back or, you know, remembering them. I still contend somewhere he has a database and I don't mean, you know, the kind of database on your computer. I mean, what we used to call a database in the old days, a journal where he kept track of his victims and their names and their phone numbers And I got really scared. I don't remember ever feeling so vulnerable, particularly as a new mom, as I did then. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. God, do you have any opinion whether or not Joseph D'Angelo had come into contact in any of the circles or by way of the circles that your stepmother and father uh, were, were part of? So this is maybe the question I get asked the most because it's the thing that would help explain, right? And so I absolutely understand it. Here's the coincidences, and I don't know that any of them have merit. My dad grew up in Citrus Heights. As we drove to go see D'Angelo's house with the 2020 team, my mom was with me and she said, oh my God, Jenny, your dad grew up right over there. So within a mile of where D'Angelo was currently living, that's where my dad grew up. Both my mom and dad went to San Juan High. Uh, I believe D'Angelo's family is associated with San Juan High. So not in Exeter, but his kids and that family. But again, I don't think there's any overlap. Charlene used to get her hair done in a place in Montecito, which is right near Santa Barbara for people that don't know the area. It's uh, really the affluent area, but it's where her hairdresser was. And in those days, she went to the hairdresser once a week. So he maybe could have seen her, although I just not sure why she would have stood out to him to be enough to follow her. But then I'm trying to get in his head, right? So who knows? And then the other um, thing that's interesting is that there's talk about how Sharon Huddle, his D'Angelo's wife at the time, had just passed the bar and was moving into her world as a lawyer. And one of the things lawyers do is they go to a lot of functions. That's totally what we called them in our house. They're functions, which are fundraisers and political things and dinners and ways people congratulate each other and, you know, make each other feel good. So Sharon was starting to do that. And, 
as you might imagine, Joseph was not particularly well suited for that sort of activity. So is there a chance Sharon and my dad might have been in the same circle? Maybe, but she didn't do the same kind of law. And I don't think my dad would have liked her at all because she was apparently not a very convivial, kind person. And my dad was all about glad handing and big smiles and really collaborating. I mean, he was a he would have been the perfect politician. He should have moved there faster. Yeah. Those are those are crazy coincidences, uh, I guess. But yeah, it is a small area, right? It it is except yeah, except that when you think of when D'Angelo was really down south, I it, it is. I really struggled to understand how he went through Santa Barbara. Well, I think he went to Ventura and then to Santa Barbara. I actually need to go look at my dates. And then he was down in Orange County for the four other murders. And so I don't, or the four other murder sites, let's put it that way. So I don't really know what was happening in his life. And gosh knows there's enough people on the boards that are trying to figure these things out. Um, And I'm not good at knowing all the crimes. I'm really good at knowing our crime. I'm not good at knowing all of them to really understand the meta Uh, level of what his brain was doing do you think that authorities told you that um that your father and stepmother were killed in their sleep to to make it easier on you to to deal with or or was it more of a holdback for the investigation no i think they actually thought that when i'm going through these uh articles from 1980 and 1981 until we get to the prelim the, the preliminary hearing where in which they were trying to see if they wanted to hold over the suspect for trial, the one they had in Ventura, until that prelim uh, is held, do we start to understand really what more the investigators have learned? So we didn't even know Charlene was raped until 1981. I honestly believe, and I think part of... I, it's interesting when I look at this whole thing and I take a step back, I really think this whole case is about humanity, both the good and the bad and the flaws. You really can't have law enforcement and law and order actually and, and justice without human beings. I contend it's going to be nearly impossible to hand this over to artificial intelligence because you have to be able to have nuance. You have to have intuition. Those things are powerful, but at the same time, they also lead to mistakes And since so many people in law enforcement and in the district attorney's office were friends with my dad and Charlene, I think that there was bias. I think there was the desire to have things go a certain way. I know there was a desire to get answers. I I know there were people who followed this case all the way up until the time D'Angelo got arrested. I was hoping to meet some of them this month in March, but then now we're sheltering. But I think just mistakes got made based on personal feelings. And I don't, I don't hold anybody accountable for that. I think that's what happens when you're close to it. And that's what happens because we're human. So there, there you have it. Now, we know that uh, D'Angelo would uh, sort of case his future victims and, and their residences. Maybe he would call them. I think that was reported that he would call them to learn their, their routines or their habits uh, on a day-to-day basis. Is there anything that stands out in your memory that he might have done that with, with your with your father and your stepmother? Did were there any was was there? I know you said you were eighteen and you were just concerned and and focused on on becoming independent and you know college and and everything that an eighteen year old thinks about. But was there anything that maybe stood out to you that that you haven't been able to connect the dots on that it could have been something like he was learning about your parents? 
so I don't have any memories of that because I didn't live with them. As I've been going through some of these old articles, I found that a few of their friends had um, no, had heard from Dad and Charlene different things that might have indicated something was up, but nothing that I think anybody would have gotten concerned about. There is a green belt behind their house. It's not technically a green belt. It looks like it's an easement for a driveway that should have been put in, but didn't. And so I, when I found that out, and that was in the early 2000s, I went to this um, green belt and I sat there. And because their house was on a hill, the angle, oh, I'm so bad at this, but the angle of that hill is, I want to say maybe about 30 degrees. It's a pretty decent angle for hillside homes. And as you sit there, there are two homes next to you, but they're up behind you. So they can't see you sitting there. And as you look over at dad and Charlene's house, they would never ever have noticed someone sitting there and any of the other homes are not oriented in a way that you would see anybody sitting in that strip of land. So I imagine he, D'Angelo could have sat there easily, easily for hours if he'd wanted and watched the back of their house, which would have been a view of their bedroom, their family room and their kitchen, which are the three rooms that they spent the most time in. And then of course their backyard patio. I mean, how terrifying is that? Because that means he just drove until he found a a view to some house. It didn't matter if he didn't know your father and stepmother outside of outside of this and and chose them, you know, by way of that, then that means he just drove until he found a clearing to a house that he knew he probably wouldn't be spotted as he was stalking it and casing their behavior. It's so random, which is I think why yeah. we don't want it to be random because it just it's it's just so random. It just, it's just, it's as apocalyptic right now as the virus, right? Like it's so random. You don't know who's going to get it and who doesn't. It's the same thing. I think that's one of the things my very logical brain fights the most is why, why, why them? How weird and karmic and bizarre was that? Like, what was that? Well, tell us what it was like when you finally heard that, that D'Angelo was arrested. You know, I never thought they'd catch the guy. Larry Poole down in Orange County had convinced me of one of three things. He was dead, which is kind of what I had hoped and thought, that he was incarcerated, although we were coming up um, with zeros on that one because the felony DNA law went into effect, and that meant collecting DNA from felons, and that wasn't getting a pop. So that didn't seem right that he was incarcerated. Larry even had checked in other countries. I mean, this one out on Interpol is how hard he tried to catch this guy and we got nothing. Or the last thing Larry said is he was disabled. He was no longer to commit the crime, no longer able to commit the crimes. If you know the crimes in the aggregate, you know that he seemed to take great pride in his agility and his ability to get in and out and escape. That was half the challenge for him, I think, is seeing how MacGyver he could be about getting away. So when he was arrested, oh my God, I didn't believe it. I honestly didn't. And it wasn't until the district attorney, I called down to Ventura as soon as um, a friend had told me the news. And I, you know, I, I woke up way too early. I'm not a good morning person and tried to figure this out, called down to Ventura and got a call back within 10 minutes from the district attorney in Ventura saying, Jen, I need to assure you it's a 100% match. And as far as I'm concerned, I knew we'd find the, once we found the killer, he was going to be DNA guilty because we had so much DNA. And with that, that is the first time that I put my old last name and my new last name together so that people from my 
um, since I, I had changed my name legally when I was 18, not because of the murder, but because Smith is the name everybody has. And Jennifer Smith is even more ordinary. So I just dropped my last name and went by Jennifer Carroll. That's the first time all my friends in Northern California finally knew who I was and knew my past. There, there were so many people that didn't know my story. So yeah, it was, a, it was quite a day and it's been life-changing for me. I, it's changed everything. I, I'm not even the same person as I was two years ago before he was arrested. I, it's changed everything for me. Well, how long were you looking into his, uh, you know, the, the the cases? I'm I'm trying to get a um like a visual of what you were like between 18 years old and and two years ago when he was caught. Was was there a level of a like obsession that was going on, or? A level of fr- like, what was the frustration level when you're told things like, you know, he might be dead or he might be, um, you know, disabled, uh, and and just that notion that there might never be a solution to this. I know that's like a ton of questions and thoughts all in one statement, but what what was it like during that time? Yeah, I, I absolutely get your your vibe there. It so the first twenty years, I did not. Uh, I was a working, a working woman. And so that is when I was most bothered because I had more time to think about it. I, you know, lived alone or with roommates. I was super involved with my career. I love working. It's super fun for me. And so I was busy, but I was also really thinking a lot about the fact that we didn't have answers. The gift of parenthood is it has an amazing way way of focusing you and making you tune out a lot of noise especially if you're a single parent, I imagine, but any parent out there, they know what I'm talking about. You don't even know what's on TV anymore. It's crazy. So I think um, the second 20 years was parenting and that kept me very busy. And I'm pretty grateful that the that he was arrested at the same time my daughter turned 18. She was getting ready to leave for college. Um, turned out that didn't happen, but it, it still meant she was you know pretty much baked. And so I was able to make a pivot and uh, change how I work and what I, and it really changed what I care about. Meeting the survivors is what changed me the most. I had always imagined one day when, when Larry had told me that they were, these crimes were associated with the East Area Rapist. I had had this, I guess you could call it a fantasy of meeting these survivors because I thought they know what they went through. They know what dad and Charlene went through. I know dad and Charlene died in a weird way that closed the story for us because as humans, we kind of know what to do when people die, but we don't really know what to do when people are raped. And so I had looked forward to maybe one day meeting one or two of these survivors. Little did I know that so many of them are now my friends. We talk to each other. We have um, a Facebook group where we share information and keep each other informed. It changed everything for me to be with these survivors. Oh, that's so cool. You can kind of see that on uh, on social media, you know, that that there's almost like a like a bond, sort of a uh, a family that's that's been forged um, by all you uh, surviving family members. It's nice to see. Yeah, I guess it's incredibly unusual. There was another big rape set of victims up here and another rapist in Sacramento, and they did not come together the way we have. But we for some reason, and I do not credit D'Angelo with this, but he apparently had great taste because the people that have been brought together are very strong men and women. And we do have some men now who have started to participate with us and they are resilient. And the sense of 
all for one and one for all, no matter what our opinions are. Like folks know I'm anti-death penalty and there are other people who are pro, but we don't care. It doesn't matter. We support each other in that because all we want is an outcome that works that where he is punished and we get to go on and we want him to be convicted. Yeah. And what a great and sorry, what I just want I need to say this before I forget. What a great revenge for all of the survivors because his main objective was to terrorize people. He he loved the fact that he could get into someone's home and invade their privacy and he would he would uh he would he would capitalize on that. He would toy around with them and and loved the idea that he had that power and the fact that all of that terrorizing and all of the tragedy that he caused still resulted in I mean it's a very tragic and and horrifying experience but it it still resulted in something like humans coming together and creating something strong and positive like that that's the best revenge i can think of yeah i hope i wish i could make sure he knew that but it doesn't matter um, he knows we're all there in court. We all come. We sit as a squad. We come together. We talk to the press afterwards. We um, we rally around and we have been amazing. And, and I have to give credit, Carol Daly, who was one of the investigators early on in the rape cases when they realized they might want to bring a woman along, um, has been an amazing part of the support in the after story. She has offered her home. She gets meals donated. So we come to this place of comfort and we're able to share a meal and talk and say things that we can't say publicly. And then we have another victim who similarly has opened her home. It's just been amazing. It's even allowed us to have, in some cases, a sense of intimacy with certain reporters who have understood the dynamic that's going on. And we've let them in to the circle to an extent so that they can understand and see how the healing is happening. It's I always think survivors have got to find each other. It this has been amazing. You have a podcast called The Lawyer's Daughter, and I think that that podcast should just be streamed twenty four hours a day into his cell. That would be awesome. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes, because the occasionally I do actually make jokes about him too. So a little shame in there as Good. well. <laughs> Have you ever spoken with one of his kids or with uh, the woman, Bonnie, or, or anyone in his personal circle or anyone in your uh, in your community? So I haven't yet. I know where to find them. I have contacts up here who know them. I've wanted to deeply, deeply respect the pain that they must be going through because they join our ranks as as victims. Sure. And I and one of them is a doctor. So there's no way I'm going to go rock her world right now because she's doing life saving duty. But I hope maybe one day I could speak with one or more of them if they're open to that. I went ahead and um, became Internet friends, as we are, with Carrie Rawson, BTK's daughter, because I really needed to understand what it was like on her Mm. side of the story. And she's been wonderful. If you haven't familiarized yourself with Carrie Rawson, you should, because there's a story that is the the, the D'Angelo girl's side of the story. I suspect that uh, Sharon, his ex-wife, does not want there to be a trial because she wants to protect her daughters. But I'm hoping that we will have some sort of at least the preliminary hearing. uh, And that will be hard on them. And so I do think about them a lot, but I haven't spoken with them directly yet. Gotcha. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I always uh, kind of wonder about that. You know, it makes more sense for, I feel like, uh, you and and like Jane Carson Sandler and people like that to kind of come together in that way. But there is sort of, even though uh, his daughters and family are also victims, it's sort of a weird, um, you know, there's still that difference there. Right. Uh, yeah. And they, you know, they've got to think things like, is this in my DNA? Am I going to be like mm-hmm. him? Do I, mm-hmm. how could I have right. survived this and not be like him? And from what I understand, their mother's not particularly warm either. So, I just feel really bad for for what they're going through. It is terrible, but I don't know if it was part of your, uh, you said you went through therapy and, and that really helped. I don't know if part of your therapy was you knowing that all you can control is you. You know, you can't, it, it's, you can feel bad for the family members of the most notorious serial killer in American history. You can feel bad, but what more could you possibly do before you just have to say like, I got to fix, I got to fix what's going on in me because of what he did. I totally agree. In fact, that's probably why I've been so involved in trying to share the story of what's happening right now, real time from inside the story. I think I might be one of the only people I know. I mean, that I could think of that's telling the story from inside the story and is actually one of the victims um, I sometimes, you know, like to think of myself like Dominic Dunn, go Google it, people. Um, he, you know, reported on the Menendez brothers, but he still wasn't in the story. He was reporting about the story, but he was there every day. I'm trying to do something similar in giving people real time information about what's happening as we learn it and how it feels to to learn this stuff and to go through it. Like just re- the request for additional DNA. That really pissed me off that they that they didn't want to give that up. And so yeah, I'm biased, but I'm also trying to bring to light how, what the process is, why it's complicated, and I do believe that D'Angelo deserves a good defense for the for the most important reason is that we want a clean conviction. Yeah. So make sure he has a defense. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to see anything come up that that they could look at and say, "Oh, this was such a oversight violation and case dismissed or you know, a reduction of sentence yeah, or something. Exactly. In fact, my dad was a defense attorney at one point and he defended a man who was facing the death penalty. I wish I would have known that when he was alive, but I didn't. I learned that after the fact. I guess I was about six or seven, my mom said, when that happened. And that's when my dad got a concealed carry permit. I feel bad that defense attorneys have to care, have to worry about death threats and things it's an important job and people have to do it. And yeah, sometimes they have, we have outcomes that um, we don't like because they can get somebody off, but mostly you want to make sure that what the convictions are true and real. There's too many people convicted on really bad evidence and we need defense attorneys out there to stand up for them as well. This is going to sound like a dumb question and feel free to laugh, but do you think there's any possibility that D'Angelo could be rehabilitated and understand what he did and have remorse for it? Ha 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 ha. Well, no. Um, I think <laughs> that he is a narcissist. I think that he, his, what we see in court, I get frustrated when reporters decide to characterize thinner as fragile because there are, 
those are two distinctly different descriptions. Thinner is accurate because you can observe that. And if you were in your science class using scientific method, that would count as an observation. You can say someone looks thinner. You cannot say someone looks fragile unless you explain why it's fragile. And I get frustrated when reporters say that because from everything I understand from the legal teams, there's nothing fragile about this guy. He is still managing the message. He is still managing the um, the look. He, he's controlling the narrative. And that's why I got really hot when the defense team leaked or intentionally put as a footnote in their motion to dismiss the fact that he is willing to take to, to plea. Now, we don't know what he's willing to plead to, but we know he is willing now, which to me seems like bad defending. But they explained to me, because I got a chance to meet with them, that it was a tactic and they couldn't go into any further explanation of that tactic because I was there with my prosecutor from Ventura. So what what's your opinion on his defense team? That's so funny. You <laughs> This is the best part. So we, I go. I they had sent the um, people with active counts against D'Angelo a letter. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but it's kind of funny because it's a little bit embarrassing. So they sent all of us letters saying that they were willing to talk to us, and so I said, "Okay, let's do this. Let's talk." So my prosecutor said, "If you do that, um, you can bring me if you want." And I said, "Yes, I would love to." So we met the morning of the hearing, two and a half weeks ago or three weeks ago. And we met with the defense team. As I'm walking up, I see them because I recognize them from court. And they, they're kind of looking at me. And I go, yes, I'm Jennifer Carroll. So we go into the meeting. And the first thing they do when they come in is they say, especially, I think it's Jim Kress is the, um, or Joe Kress. He's the, I, I think he's the lead defense attorney. He said, so I've listened to your podcast. You've had things <laughs> to say about us. <laughs> yes. Well, yes, I have, haven't I? I said, so I quickly explained that I do value their position, but yeah, I think they've made some tactical errors. Oh my God, I am such a jackass. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to own it. But the thing is, I do, I do find some flaws in their strategy. I'm not a lawyer, um, but like many of us, we've, I've watched many, many true crime shows. So, and I've watched every episode of Law and Order, so I could be a lawyer. Um, but I don't understand some of their strategy. And I do think it's a little whiny at times and poor me instead of focusing on what matters and using the 80-20 rule and tuning out a lot of their 250,000 pages of discovery. So what? Focus on what matters, guys. Everybody's yeah. job has a lot of BS. We can't get buried in that. You don't have to answer every email. Get a grip. So yeah, <laughs> just to have them say it right in my face was... That was a moment, but it's okay. It's all's fair. I'm, I'm going public. I got to own my stuff. Right. Well, what a journey, um, that, that this has kind of taken you on. Um, and can, can you tell us a little bit about your coaching, your energy coaching and team coaching? Well, so thank you. I do coaching. Um, it's interesting cause it's even taken a pivot since I started that, that seemed like a, the right move as I started to do more advocacy. What I am doing now is I, uh, because I, am, I guess, a broadcaster. Who knew? But I'm doing a, a Life Coach Pod, which is a podcast about um, really living and pulling together experts. And then I do do coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching for people who want to make a change. It's not therapy. Uh, I'm not going to go back into your past and figure out why, unless it's blocking you in some way. And there's some reason you can't get out of your life what you want to get out of your life. 
So it's a really good opportunity to have somebody on your side who doesn't have a bias, who's focused on you and wants to help you figure out how to live your best life. So that sounds so California crunchy, but it's really an amazing process and it's very non-judgmental. And I find it really helps for people who have been struggling and just don't know why they're stuck. I've coached people who have been in, just got a divorce or just new to finances or just want to make a career change, all kinds of things that sometimes you just need somebody else to help you figure it out. So that's, that's what I do. I'm doing more though in a broader way as I feel like I can reach more people. Uh, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, but of course it doesn't quite pay the bills the same as one-on-one coaching. So there's that. Well, you, you said it sounds kind of California crunchy, but as you were saying that I was looking on your website to try to figure out where to sign up. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yes. Thank you. Well, yeah, it's, it, it is really, um, it's really focused on helping you get out of your rut. I can't think of a better, whatever that rut is. And everybody's got some kind of place where they're stuck. It's a good time to do it. If you don't want, if you can't afford it, then listen to the podcast. Cause I'm bringing on a lot of guests who are talking about things that can help you make change in your life, especially now when we kind of got time to think about it, you know, in between yeah. Netflix. Right, right. Well, where can uh, can our listeners find your work? You can find everything at jcarol.com. That's J-C-A-R-O-L-E. But if you just want to Google for the Lawyer's Daughter podcast, that's the one I think you'll find the most fun if you're into true crime. And then the Life, Code, Life Coach pod is also available as a podcast or it's on a YouTube channel. So I'm look at me. I'm so syndicated. <laughs> nice and and very cool. Never, never, never change the font that's on your website because it makes everybody feel great looking at it. Oh, cool! I wanted to go a little vintage because yeah. you know, come back from, go back in the time, uh, back in the day, as they say. Yeah, I, <laughs> the the font you use for your name makes me feel like I I'm laying on a beach. Uh, there with you a go. Surfboard it's well with a VW van in the background. Please, a camper van. I love it. That's I used to have. 68 band those were the best oh.